You're listening to the Super Talk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to Super Talk. My name is Gary West and I'm the Senior Manager, Media and Communications with AIST. Today we'll be looking at the decarbonisation of fixed income portfolios. Joining me is Mitch Resnick, Head of Sustainable Fixed Income and Investment Manager, Federated Hermes. Among the topics you'll be hearing about today are the meaning of decarbonisation, how it's measured, the different portfolio approaches, the role of engagement, and much more. Mitch, thanks for joining me today. To start with, what do you mean by decarbonisation of fixed-in portfolios, and how is it measured? Thanks, Gary, very much for for having me on this call. Um, Sure. So, first of all, um, perhaps at the risk of stating the obvious, a portfolio is an aggregation of companies, and each of those companies creates goods and services or is financing the creation of those goods and services. And it's in that value creation process um, that we that we have greenhouse gases that are either emitted through that process or, or again, sort of financed through that process, such as CO2 or methane. And maybe that's from consumption of energy or burning of fossil fuels through uh, internal combustion engines. Uh, and the like. But it's the aggregation of all these emissions in a portfolio that can be measured in, in what's called as a carbon footprint or uh, sometimes carbon intensity, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the act of decarbonization is taking that full aggregation of that uh, of those emissions and, 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 um, and reducing them o- over time. Um, and the the way that we measure that, there are a couple of KPIs. One is, as mentioned, is called carbon footprint, and the other is intensity. Footprint uh, is perhaps the more intuitive measure of emissions. It's kind of sort of the gross amount, just the output. uh, And sometimes it's stated on a relative basis. But intensity is almost the yield in a way. It's sort of um, the emissions uh, on on a normalized base, perhaps by revenue or uh, enterprise value, which makes much more sense from fixed income, those two versus, say, market cap. And the benefit of the intensity number is that in this normalized way, it allows you to compare um, a company's e- emissions uh, for, for versus a company of different size. So in that sense, it sort of rebases. So you have those two, those two kind of KPIs. Why decarbonize these portfolios? What are the benefits and for whom? Sure. So yeah, they're, they're multiple actually. The, the first thing at, at its most basic is that in some cases you have investment strategies that, that mandate that. So the benefit there is just simply to align the, the portfolio with, with the mandate. And you know, so the question is like, a, well, maybe the, the next question we will look at, well, why would you even have that as an objective? Um, and the, the reality is, is there there are multiple benefits, and and they accrue to to different layers of of um, stakeholders. It could be you know sh- investors, society at large. But but let's just sort of break break those down. Um, you know, s- some are financial. So for example, um, you, you know, you might, might want to decarbonize a portfolio to manage risks. There are financial risks associated with the emissions of carbons, uh, 
for example, we call this transition risk. So for, for example, the, um, the fact that regulation is increasingly coming into the fore and it is dr potentially driving up costs to companies that don't make an effort to de decarbonize. Um, that's sort of, that's a top-down reason why companies uh, would, would need to, to decarbonize. But there's also, it's also part of transition transition risk. The consumers are beginning to move away from companies that are high emitters. And so from a bottom-up point of view, there's another reason for companies to, to think about how they would decarbonize their, their operations. And finally, from a transition risk point of view, let's think about the value chain. As you, as you probably have seen, a lot of downstream companies, OEMs, manufacturers are themselves committing to net zero policies. And what that does is it shifts their whole value chain. They're going to look through their value chain to find the companies that are aligning with their own um, with their own net net zero options. So if you if you add up all these up, you can see that there's a combination of risks and there's a combination of, of opportunities. And it's trying to tease out those companies that can see that there is secular change in the economy, and they want and 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 they want to sh shift and tilt and pivot in that direction. I mean, even in the case of Australia, there's you know several examples of that. And the the, um, the the competition commission there is um, has issued some concerns about. Um, claims of companies that are that are potentially greenwashing. So that is a reputation risk for a company. And also on the opportunity side, I've read recently that the um that uh there's there's a um uh there's an opportunity in sustainable aviation fuel. So Airbus has reached an agreement with Qantas. They've created a fund last year to slowly begin investing in Australia in the development of uh of sustainable Aviation fuels. Now, this is early stages, but over time, uh, this you know potentially is an opp opportunity for, from an early stage, and we see that all all across the um, you know different sectors. The last thing I want to want to add to your point about who benefits this, benefits from this. Look, I, I think it's fairly obvious that climate change is is a matter of science. It's a fact. It's been highlighted in multiple reports, including W W WEF, the World Economic Forum, the IPCC, that climate change is resulting in systematic risk and this is rising and this affects all and now it is a it, it, you know in in some ways it's a it's a longer term issue but there are immediate effects now as we've seen from 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 drought and from forest fires etc so there's systematic risk associated with this this isn't just the, you know it's more than just the right thing to do this is actually having true and real risk in, in the in the you know you know aside from just society, but also in the 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 act of creating value. So all of these needs to be addressed. All of these needs to be addressed, and and as you can see, there are multiple layers in society that will benefit from from this uh, from addressing this. Yeah, a question arises from from that answer, and you may be coming to this in um, future responses. But uh, does decarbonisation? Um, come at a cost to um, a financial cost, a cost to returns, and, and to what extent is that something that needs to be considered? Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is a great question, Gary, because this is a this is a matter of dealing with, um, you know, when you, when you pivot a strategy or shift in the direction, it requires perhaps investment in the company. So, you know, for example, telecom might reseed its its base stations with more energy efficient um, kit. Now that will 
require capex and cost, but it reduces emissions. And over time, if it's more energy efficient, reduces their own operating costs. So, so yeah, you know, quite often this this is what makes a challenge, and is that does require a shift. But this is about pivoting companies in the direction of where the economy is going. This is secular change. There will be winners and losers, and you need to reinvest as any company would do as it sees uh, these kinds of shifts happening. And that's the, those are the kinds of opportunities that we look, look for. And we respect that, that you know, from a fixed income point of view, that's going to take cash, but this is an investment in the future. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and if it's well justified, then, then it makes sense. And mind you, companies have committed to this decarbonization trend. So there's an element back to the previous question about reputation risk, right? You want to hit those numbers. You don't want to be the one on the headline that's missing. And so, we look for that additional capital and that additional OPEX actually as something positive because it shows that the commitment is genuine and real. Uh, and and that, that, you know, that that's positive because we see medium and long-term benefits. And from, from a credit investment point of view, that that's quite positive. What are the uh, portfolio approaches to decarbonization and, and the trade-offs and the benefits of each approach? Sure. Another, another good question because they're, uh, there are um, there are there are several ways to do this, and they can run from the gamut of sort of greenwashing to to genuine. And uh, and there, you know, the way I think about this is three broad approaches, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll mention each, and then we'll we'll talk through each of those. And the the first is effectively you have a portfolio that's kind of low low carbon footprint or low intensity already, and and maybe it'll it'll trend in that direction as as the economy moves. The second is that perhaps you. You, the portfolio starts high with a high carbon footprint, but then trades low to, to trade you know, trades to lower carbon emitting companies as a, as a means of decarbonization. And a third approach is uh, perhaps the the portfolio starts at high or above average, shall we say? And over time, the these are you you invest in companies that have decarbonization credible decarbonization policies, and so transitions to low. And let me walk through each of those and tell you what I think are possibly the 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 trade-offs. Now in the first one, you know, start, you know, portfolio that starts with a low carbon footprint and, and has a has a slower uh maybe stays stays low but has a slower decarbonization trajectory because well it's it's already there. But there, you know, the, the, you've got great KPIs, right? You've got a really nice portfolio in terms of uh emissions. It's probably lower than some benchmark and that you know that that that's quite attractive to some um, I think there, though, there's a risk that the diversification isn't as as much as you'd like to see in a credit portfolio because you're 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 in say, say tech or media uh, and really away from the cyclical. So it's there's going to be a lot of tracking error in a portfolio like that. Um, as far as the benefits to to society at large, you know that's it's hard it's hard to say. It depends on what those companies are. It could could be a portfolio of renewable companies, and hey, that's 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 not a bad thing, right? Um, and then. From an alpha point of view, look, these are companies that are, you know, maybe poised to benefit from from the secular change in the economy. Maybe they're already there. I think it's it's neutral. I think to, to hard 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 to pick. I mean, obviously that there's the there's the, going to be the stock picking or the security picking to deliver that alpha as well. The second um, path to decarbonization that I described is you know where you sort of start high or above average and then you trade low, and this is. Uh, one that it perhaps in some ways is, is 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 fraught because it begs the question of what are you what are you doing for the for, to address that systematic risk, which is where you maybe start high, and you have that diverse portfolio, um, um, but you're you're trading low, so maybe you you trade your steel 
you sell your steel to buy media. Well, that's great from a carbon footprint point of view, and I think that is a positive. Is that the the portfolio looks looks great from that perspective, but you're slowly undermining the diversification of the portfolio, um, and 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 probably you know you're selling names that may go to somebody else, and maybe they're not decarbonization stories, so it may not be the best thing for for addressing systematic risk. And in terms of alpha generation, I think that's a tougher you know that's a tougher call. Could go one way or the other. It, you all will have to swim a bit harder if you're in. You know, box into certain sectors and don't take advantage of of uh, how you know sectors go cheap to rich and rich to cheap, et cetera. The third is is what I call transition. So these are companies that are maybe relatively high or you know certainly again above the median, but then are transition stories to so decarbonize themselves over time. And here that the footprint isn't going to be great today. Certainly not as attractive as as, as certainly the, the the first first uh, the first portfolio they described. But you at least have the you have the benefit of having a diversified portfolio. You've you've selected store, companies that are decarbonizing, which you know, in my view, as you, as you can probably imagine, um, recognize the structural change in the economy and will benefit from that over time. So for me, the other two areas where where it benefits from, I think, is that you're you know you're 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 de-risking society at large, uh, particularly. In a fund like this, you're going to have exposure to the more material emitters, and if you find those in, in say, cement or steel or what have you, uh, and mining that are investing in decarbonization, well, that is a contribution to de-risking. And I think, you know, personally, when how I see the, the the global economy going, that's an alpha opportunity because these are companies that are avoiding those transition risks that I described, and that are perhaps even picking up. Alpha opportunities, such as thing, you know, you know, crazy things like you know, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, which will, which will certainly over time grow and grow. The last thing that I want to touch on that is, and I think this is a really important point: is how do you even measure this stuff? How do you even know that you're decarbonizing? And a little, and in a way, this goes back to this first question of you know, what is decarbonization and how does it happen? I talked about these KPIs. We'll pick your KPI, whether it's footprint or intensity. You select a baseline year. Quite often, 2019 is a common year. Um, this is in line with other sort of norms. And then, so you set your target. And then, now that you've got a KPI, you can measure it on an annual basis. You can track it. Perhaps you measured it against some benchmark. There, you know, there, you could have decarbonization targets that are a certain percent per year. You could have a 2030, a 2035 target, et cetera, all the way to 2050. But that's where the rigor comes in and it's actually extremely complicated to do this because portfolios are dynamic right you this isn't the only thing you're trading on you're trading on valuations as well right we also have an obligation to deliver financial performance to our investors now long term i think decarbonization makes sense but on a month to month year to year basis um, those considerations are important as well so a portfolio's carbon footprint or its carbon intensity will probably evolve. So the main thing is just to, it's not going to be like everything in finance, it's not going to be a straight line. So you just have to understand, you know, you know, deliver into the objectives that govern that portfolio and track it and be able to explain it and, and you know, and understand how you get there from here. Sure. Thanks. Uh, before we come to that, the next question, uh, a couple of definitions, uh, if I may, um, terms you've used on the way through. Uh, one is alpha, and secondly, uh, greenwashing for the for our, our listeners who aren't familiar with what they mean. Sure. Let's start with alpha, and sorry for that. Yeah, so alpha is um, a term used, and we say generating alpha, and that is delivering 
financial returns, financial performance that is in excess of peers and or a benchmark. So really, when we say outperformance, we're talking about alpha. Greenwashing, uh, great question. Greenwashing, um, let me think about how to say this in a sort of pithy way. Greenwashing is the, uh, the term referred to a company that indicates that it's delivering uh, non-fundamental performance, shall we say, decarbonization or benefits to the planet or society that exceed the reality of what it's actually doing. And why do companies or even asset managers or really anyone get caught up into this because that that as you can as you probably know Gary right now it's quite uh, an important impression to give is that you're doing your bit for society but also as a means to de-risk and as a means to generate back to that word alpha and the and the impression that you are 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 reducing your um your your uh, negative impact on society and the environment is deemed to be positive. Now, greenwashing is a, ter is a term that refers to a company that's not actually delivering into that indication. Moving on, um, and this is probably uh, gives you the opportunity to wrap together what you were saying with your um, your your previous answer, um, and that is, how do you implement this from a portfolio management perspective? Right. Okay. So. I, I touched upon that a little bit, which is you establish your KPIs and targets and track that. But 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 you're you're asking, say, okay, yeah, that's fine. But drill down on a day to day basis. You're sitting in front of your screens and you've got your investable universe. How do you actually do it? So um, I, I ran over three options. Maybe I'll just give a general sense. Perhaps that third option um, is a good example. Um, again, it's a combination of top down and bottom up. From a bottom up point of view, you know, you're you, you've got a team of analysts. You know, like us, perhaps a team of sustainability analysts as well, and you start with data. Okay, so get the raw data on a company, its actual carbon emissions. Um, get a sense of there's if if it's uh, if you've got that data over a period of time, you can determine some momentum. Maybe there's some other um, assessments that are out there. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, maybe from CDP Carbon Disclosure Project, which is a which is an organization that assesses a company's decarbonization trajectory. You put all this data and these assessments together to build a, a profile of a company. It's like, okay, this looks good, or this looks like there's nothing here. But when we invest, particularly in something as shall we say early stage about uh, as decarbonization, it's not so much about where they are today, it's about where they're going in the future. So today, the snapshot might not be great for a company, or it could be good, whatever. The point is, is directionally which way it's going. And that requires converting this quantitative assessment of those data profile, this carbon profile, into a forward-looking view, which is qualitative at the end of the day. So look at the reports, read transcripts, meet with the company, engage with the company, look at the governance of the business. What kind of policies does it have in place? Back to your question about, you know, um, you know, how does a company do it? Look at, op, you know, is there a cost to it? OPEX, CAPEX. And then that will complete your profile from a company's point of view. And then, you know, what we do is we score that. And it gets, it's on a, on a, on an ex-ante basis, um, you know, to understand, you know, directionally which way, way a company is going. Um, then, you know, balance that view with valuations and, and credit risk. And you wrap that all up and you've got, a, now you've got a billion block for a portfolio. And how much you want to use that will be based on how these variables interact, decarbonization, credit risk, and valuations. Uh, and that 
you know, combine that with perhaps a top-down view, you know, which sectors you like, which 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 jurisdictions, that kind of thing. And that's how you build the portfolio. And then through those KPIs that I described and how you set targets, you track that over time. And, um, and uh, you know, ultimately, you know, you know, see and measure, see, you know, look and determine if, if that decarbonization um, trajectory is actually happening within the portfolio. Tell me about the role of engagement and the perspective of a fixed income investor. Sure. So yes, I I did I did mention that, and you picked up on that 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 engagement term. Um, so let's let's step step back. And engagement. What what is it? Um, engagement is constructive dialogue between investors and companies, particularly in the areas um, that the you know social and environmental factors. Now, quite often we think of engagement as the providence of of equity holders because the shareholders control the company and that's all correct and true. You know, what I, what I would argue, and, and we manage an engagement, a high yield engagement fund is that, um, and I've seen this in action as a financial stakeholder, whether equity or credit, you have the right. And I would argue if, if not the obligation to engage with the company, because as a financial stakeholder, the trajectory of your securities will follow the path that the company is tracking. So you have, just out of the box, you have a financial interest as well, which gives you the right to have discussions of concerns that deal with the financial performance of the company. Now, take that um, and say, okay, well, fine. So equity and credit investors have have the same rights to engage, fine. But then, you know, from my perspective, there isn't really much of a difference, if any at all, um, in engagement from a fixed income perspective, because matters of environment and, and, and uh, environmental and social factors will affect enterprise value and that will affect credit and that will affect equity. Now I know that will maybe in different ways um, and we, you know, we talk about that, but that's the reality. Enterprise value has an impact on, on fixed income investors. So um, there's, a, you know, and, and quite often we'll engage on behalf of fixed income and equity. And I think that actually gives, creates a lot of influence uh, as well when you think about the firepower behind that. But the leverage, the, the leverage point for fixed income is a little bit different than it is for equity, right? So equity have that ownership fixed income investors, we actually have something that's very important to companies too, and that's cash. Cash is the lifeblood, it's the oxygen of a company, and there's a need for it on a recurring basis, unlike equity. Equity, you know, you have that primary issuance and every now and then you have a, a, a secondary offering to finance, but but generally, you know, fixed income companies are, you know, hitting the capital markets to refinance their debt all the time, or even to pay for M&A, whatever. So that's a that's an important touch point and important leverage point. Now I wouldn't want to take advantage of that and 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 be coercive about it, but I think you know in, in, until really really when, when when engagement is 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 at its end. But I think the combination of corporate culture evolving and more uh, paying more attention to these these non fundamental factors combined, you know, and you combine that with fixed income investors' interest in these areas, we find that companies are much more um, you know, are really open to listening to f- fixed income investors on these matters, these social environmental matters. And that's particularly true with, with private companies where there isn't public equity. So we deal a lot in the high yield space. Um, but the key thing is that these are companies that have a recurring presence in the capital markets. Your small private equity company, maybe you have a little bit less leverage and that's that's not a given, but you definitely have a bit of a voice for those companies that are, are, are public market-like with that recurring presence 
in the capital markets. Um, so it's a, you know, it's, I, I, you know, wrapping that up, I think fixed income has, has exactly, you know, absolutely this, the same obligation, same right and, and obligation as, as equity and ability to, to influence companies too. So and, in fact, did, sorry, did, yeah, apologies for that. Just, just, um, Chris, when I was thinking about it, I said that ultimately I think, you know, what, what this, you know, what this does is it, it, it creates companies that are more resilient and, and I think better governed as well. So, in fact, uh, debt holders should be and, in fact, are being treated with the same respect as equity holders. That Yes, absolutely. Finally, does decarbonisation of a fixed income portfolio actually even work? Some people may wonder why you would even bother to try. Sure. Well, um it's you know it's you know it's fairly early days. This is something we, you know we've 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 been uh, the market in general has been um, been focused on for really the last two to three years. So um, you know early early days we're beginning to see the the um, and it's been a pretty volatile period when you think about having gone through COVID and you know we had a massive fall off in in, in energy consumption. Then we had a sudden rise. So in two thousand twenty one emissions. Year-on-year emissions actually rose substantially, and we're just getting numbers in for 2022. And and, and sadly, there's a there's a there is an increase, but it's much smaller than expected, and that's that's the good news. But we're now probably settling, getting through this 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 volatile period. Um, and um, but I, you know, so I th so I th if you think about this, having just established uh, itself for the the, the the past couple of years, I think. We're we're now beginning to see results of that we are seeing companies reporting declines. They're attacking low hanging fruit. The key thing here, though, is is that companies are decarbonizing where there's materiality, right? So, not to complicate things with more jargon, there are three classifications of greenhouse gases: scope one, scope two, and scope three. Scope one is direct emissions for activities um, that a company controls. Um, so. Um, it, it, it's it's the manufacturing process itself. Indirect emissions, which is scope two, are is the is is are emissions um, generated from uh, energy that companies consume. And the third is really a complicated one, and this is the most difficult one, which we call scope three. Also, indirect emissions, and these are activities that are not in your control. So, like your value chain, um, embedded carbon in your products, like oil, for example measuring those are really challenging. So you ask, you know, is it working? Well, a lot of companies might are, are, are addressing the, 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 um, the items in their control, direct emissions, and also sort of their sources of energy, switching off oil and turning to renewables, et cetera. That's decarbonizing. But sometimes that's not the most material part of a carbon footprint. You know, you take, we've got some not gas companies that, you know, 70% of their emissions are in scope three, not scope one and two. So their decarbonizing on a scope one and two basis. And I think that's helpful, but what we really want to see is that, that materiality. Uh, the scope three in, in companies like that, and yet I think there that sort of this, the the verdict isn't isn't there yet, and that's that's the transition aspect, and that may take a little more time, uh, but there's clearly mo momentum behind that, uh, and the reason why we want this is I think you know I, I sort of got onto that that point is that in, in, you know at the risk of repeating myself is that resilient companies and well governed companies are companies for the future and these are the ones that we think will generate alpha over time so there's financial performance behind that as well and i've already mentioned the de-risking component that's all for this episode of super talk thanks to mitch resnick of federated hermes
For more episodes of Super Talk and for more information on the work of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, visit our website at aist.asn.au and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. <laughs>